Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. We started the Barely Getting By podcast because we both felt like, you know, we're, we're pretty smart. We're trained historians. We did our PhD together. That's why we're friends. Um, but we have... There are more reasons why we're friends. That's true. Emma. Yeah. <laughs> that's part of the reason. But we are both kind of struggling, I guess, with the with the state of the world and, and current politics and understanding what on earth is going on. So we've started this podcast series and we're going to be looking at some of the big issues of our time. So whether it's fascism or political fiction or environmentalism or feminism, we're going to be taking a kind of a deep dive, a deep historical dive into what has led us to this present moment. And we thought for this very first episode of the Barely Getting By podcast, we'd start with a country that's barely getting by. And I mean Britain. Of course, it's Britain. And we've, we've been having some major regrets at, at opening the Barely Getting By podcast with, with an episode on Brexit. This is, I think, about our third go of getting it up to date, which has been really, really fun, of course, because things are moving so quickly. You know, we woke up this morning and things had changed again. But I guess part of the point, as Chloe just said, of, of starting Barely Getting By was, was to go into the history of these issues that are so perplexing and, and confusing people, including us, and to, to really understand that history because, of course, as historians, we we are firmly of the belief that understanding that history is absolutely crucial to understanding the present and also not to predict, not to predicting, but to understanding where it is that we might be going. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think Brexit is a great example of that because the current position we're in, and, you know, this could change tomorrow, it could be completely different in a week's time, but I'm pretty firm in my belief that a lot of what we're seeing in the present of Brexit was actually written in its past, and that's going back three years to the 2016 referendum, but even back further to, say, the 1980s. Exactly, and that is precisely what we're going to talk about today. So I feel, I guess, kind of closer to Brexit than maybe most people do because here at RMIT I work at the European Union Centre. So it's kind of my job really to be across European politics. And when I started here over a year ago now, I kind of decided I was going to be able to comment on Brexit. Right, right. So I spent a lot of my time talking about US politics and I thought, surely I can do this for Brexit as well. And it very two things quickly became apparent to me. The first was that it was basically humanly impossible to be across the kind of day-to-day of what was happening in the US and what was happening in the UK at the same time. I did not have enough hours in the day. But I think the second and most important thing was that I, you know, I understand European politics and I could kind of comment on the day-to-day developments, but I wasn't actually adding anything to the conversation. And that's because as a historian, I think I was kind of particularly conscious of not having the background in British history that you really need, I think, to understand the kind of depths of Brexit beyond the kind of day-to-day legal disagreements or political disagreements or whatever. You need a really deep grounding in British history. And that's why I'm really lucky to have Chloe in my life because Chloe understands British politics, I think, more than most people I know, at least. And so I'm going to talk to Chloe today about Brexit, which I do all the time. And one of the things that I did, Chloe, when I was first trying to really get my head around this 
was come to you and say, give me stuff to read. I need like a book to read that explains to me the kind of long history of Brexit and how we got here. And your answer was basically, there are none. That's right. And there, I was when you asked me that question, I had to think it through. And I know that, you know, I've always recommended to Emma and to other acquaintances of mine that if they want to keep up with Brexit, then they keep in touch with the London Review of Books. And we'll be providing some links in the show notes for this episode. But really, if you wanted to find a book about Brexit, there are no good books about Brexit. And that is because of exactly what you've described, Emma, which is the fast pace and the ever-changing nature of events in relation to Brexit. What I would say, though, is that in the recent past, I have read a couple of good novels, which, if they're not directly about Brexit, they certainly do capture, I guess, something of what it's like to live under those conditions of not really quite knowing the country that you're living in or not knowing what the political ground you're standing on is and, you know, how that's shifting from day to day. So, you know, just briefly, like, I've been reading um, a book by Ali Smith, who's a Scottish novelist called Spring. It's part of a quartet of books that she's writing basically as a literary response to Brexit. And that's been really great for helping me understand what it's like to live with this dramatic political situation. Um, Also a book called Crudo by a novelist called Olivia Lang. That's been great. And I know this is something that we want to talk about in a future episode of the podcast, where we're actually going to talk about how, about fictional responses to politics and if fiction can tell us anything about the state of the world today and where it's going. But to return to your original question, and, you know, I'm going to put a big caveat on this, which is that even though I do know a lot about British history, I have a PhD in British history, I'm just as uncertain as you about what's going on day to day. So I think that it's really important that we take the time now to take a few steps back and look at the history of the Brexit referendum look at the state of play now in terms of the major parties and their positions, maybe then we can have some guesses about what comes next. Yeah, for sure. And I think as we've just discussed, the kind of understanding the history of it is really crucial. And that's maybe, you know, where fiction, of course, doesn't provide us all the answers because it doesn't get to those core issues. So, So maybe we'll start then with this kind of history this brief history of Brexit. So, Chloe, I'm going, to, I'm going to put the pressure on you and say, in like five minutes or less, give us the kind of brief history of Brexit. How did we get here? I reckon I can do it in three. So, in 2015, David Cameron, who was the leader of the Conservative Party at the time and the Prime Minister, made a commitment in the, in the Conservative Party's election manifesto to hold a referendum on Britain's membership of the EU. This was entirely about managing tensions within his own party. So for 20 years previously, so since the the rise of UKIP in the early 1990s, which is the the pro-Brexit party. Okay, this is, that's like Nigel Farage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Nigel Nigel Farage's party. The Conservative Party had been quietly racked by this question of whether Britain should remain in the EU. And it had this very agitated wing of its right that was very sensitive to the threat of UKIP and they wanted Britain to leave the EU. So basically David Cameron made this manifesto pledge in the, this manifesto pledge to hold a referendum on Brexit to silence those members of the Tory party, okay? Keep them happy, keep them quiet, just manage tensions for the year, okay. probably for the foreseeable future. So kind of outsourcing the problem. Kind of outsourcing the problem, but what made this... I, 
And I don't know. I don't know if David Cameron expected to lose that election and for this problem to just go away, but certainly most pundits were expecting that the Labor Party would win that 2015 election and this referendum would never have to come to pass. However, in 2015 the Conservatives could return to power. And that was a very unexpected result. It was a heartbreaking result for me because I am a big fan of Ed Miliband, who <laughs> was the leader of the Labor Party at the time. Um, Ed Miliband has since reinvented himself as a, a brilliant podcast host. He hosts a podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful, which was, I think, one of the inspirations behind what we're doing, Emma. Um, look, if it was, it hasn't turned out that way. Well, yeah. I mean, one of our alternative names for this podcast was Reasons to be Fearful. So... Oh. Once it's true. <laughs> no, so look, the personal tragedy for me aside, <laughs> what the Labor Party losing that election meant was that David Cameron then had to honour that pledge and hold a referendum on Brexit, which was then scheduled for June 2016. That campaign came around. Most people expected that the Remain vote would win and Britain would remain a member of the EU with nothing really changed. However, as it was, the leave side won by a very narrow margin. The kind of political move on the part of Cameron that's backfired pretty spectacularly. Yes, that would be an understatement. Okay. And so, Chloe, you were actually in the UK when the referendum happened. What was that like? Well, the first thing to say about that is that I had a very limited perspective on the referendum because I was living in London. Um, London, and as has been proved by the referendum and events since, London is very different to other parts of the UK. London is generally more politically progressive. It's also where a lot of business, especially finance capital, has its home base. So basically what you see in London is the population is overwhelmingly well served by the EU. It was always going to be a place that was sort of a bulwark bulwark for um, the Remain vote. So yes, that's sort of that narrowed my perspective on the referendum. So kind of a bit like being experiencing an Australian federal election in Melbourne or Sydney as opposed to like regional Queensland. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what I think that kind of that London tunnel vision meant for me was that I was very surprised by the result. I actually, um, I went to bed the night of the referendum having, you know, dutifully cast my vote for Remain as a good British citizen. <laughs> um, and I went to sleep and I thought, oh, you know, Remain's going to not romp it in, but they will win by a slim margin and nothing will be different when I wake up in the morning. And then I did, and obviously the result had come through and it was like I was in a completely different country. And I feel like that was a real moment when the sort of the scales fell from my eyes and I understood that the whole time I had been studying Britain and living in Britain, I'd lived in quite a different country to the one that I'd previously apprehended. But, I mean, of course, you're not alone in that. You know, I think a lot of people experience something very similar to that kind of shock. You know, it's not dissimilar to waking up after the 2016 presidential election or even the more recent Australian federal election, you know, people are genuinely surprised by these results for, for good reason. But when you when you look back on it, I guess, with the, the benefit of hindsight, are there any are there any signs that you kind of feel like maybe you missed or didn't didn't give enough weight as it was happening? Yes. Um every time I think about it, I think of two incidents in sort of the month leading up to the leading up to the referendum that really, they gave me pause at the time, but I should have thought about them a lot more. 
The first was, so, you know, going into a little bit of family history here, I have about a million cousins scattered over Essex. So, and specifically, they're centred on a part of the country where I think their home constituency had a 70% pro-Brexit vote, which is pretty high. Um, And I remember going out to Essex, to Basildon, and seeing some of my relatives in the weeks before the referendum. And first of all, I've never had so many conversations in my life that began with someone saying, I'm not a racist, but... Oh, my God. And, yeah, and and secondly, um, all my relatives, they were quite fiercely anti-EU. And that surprised me that, the, you know, they give the real depth of feeling against the EU. And we can talk about the ins and outs of that and whether that's sort of a cover for, you know, other economic economic insecurity or if that is actually a cover for racism, which, you know, what I just said before probably indicates a strong element in that. But that was something I really underestimated in the lead up to the referendum was how strongly people who didn't, hadn't, you know, had lost faith in Britain's relationship with the EU, how strongly they felt that. The second thing that I think did give me pause for thought about the referendum was a conversation I had with my housemate at the time who was this, she was this very glamorous French master's student who worked in this like ridiculously posh gallery in central London. And, you know, you know, I really felt for her because the second the referendum result came through, her citizenship status and her residency in the UK was thrown into doubt. So she was totally devastated by it and she was really involved in, um, in the campaign to remain. And she came home one day and she had this poster that her posh gallery had had created in support of the campaign. It was like, I can't remember exactly what it looked like, but it was basically, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And it was this really optimistic message of hope, trying to cajole people to, remain, to vote to remain in the EU. And I looked at that and I thought back to meeting my relatives in Essex and I thought, okay, if this is the best that the Remain campaign can do to try to talk about these people who are feeling so aggrieved and so disenfranchised... I don't know how they're going to win this referendum. And at the time, I didn't give it as much weight as I should have in retrospect, but I think that was a real indicator that maybe the, that the Remain campaign had got its messaging wrong. It's amazing, isn't it, how those that story is kind of so easily transferable to, to the different contexts that we're experiencing in the Western world at the moment. You know, those stories you feel like you could fairly easily transplant to Australia or the US in 2016, which which is pretty, yeah, it's it's pretty striking, I think. But I guess what I'd what I'd ask you to do now, in the interest of kind of bringing us up to speed since then, and those kind of extraordinary experiences of of being in London during that referendum process, what's what's happened since then? Where are we now? Okay, so keeping in mind that David Cameron had overseen the 2016 referendum, and it was kind of his fault that Britain got into this mess in the first place. I think it would have been reasonable to expect him to stick it out and oversee what happened next. He didn't. He almost immediately stepped down as Prime Minister and after a Tory leadership election, Theresa May came in as Prime Minister. I think it's worth noting that Boris Johnson very briefly contested that election. He did. He did, but he was quite spectacularly stabbed in the back and abandoned by Michael Gove, who previously had been one of his closest allies in Parliament. So that was sort of a short-lived run at the leadership yep. by Boris Johnson, but he, abs- of, of course, he's now come back. So Theresa May came in as Prime Minister and she was therefore responsible for overseeing negotiations with the EU about what Brexit would actually look like. Yep. And that meant negotiating a withdrawal agreement which would set out the terms for Brexit. 
Theresa May had what at the time seemed like kind of an evil genius idea of holding a general election in 2017. The reason that seemed like a great idea was because the Labor Party in the meantime had gone through a crisis of its own and it was looking very weak and that's because Jeremy Corbyn came in as leader. Okay. okay. So, so, sorry, why why was Corbyn seen as weak at that time? So Corbyn came in as the, as the Labor leader shortly after the, after the referendum because Ed Miliband also stepped down as the leader of the Labor Party. Jeremy Corbyn is incredibly popular with Labor members. However, he is not of a kin with the, with the sections, parts of the Labor Party that had successfully won government previously. So he is okay. basically, you know, a political, a political enemy of, the, of um, Tony Blair. Okay. 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 So he's he's kind of the antithesis of that. He is a left wing socialist internationalist. He is not of a piece with Blairism and that sort of third way politics that came that came to the fore in the nineteen nineties. So May sees him as kind of an easy target. Yeah, and look, I don't think I don't think that was entirely groundless, but things seemed to change quite rapidly during that twenty seventeen that twenty seventeen election campaign. So. First of all, the Tories kind of bungled the whole campaign. And second of all, Labor had a much stronger showing than anyone expected, including the polls. So, again, going back to this problem of, you know, do polls, can polls tell us anything? They were extraordinarily inaccurate when it came to the general election. And what happened instead of, as people predicted, Theresa May increasing her majority and basically wiping out the Labor Party for, you know, the next political generation... um, the Conservative government was kind of thrown into minority government. So they could only govern and they could only pass bills through Parliament with the support of the Democratic Unionist Party, which is an extremely socially conservative Protestant party from Northern Ireland. Okay, so with a very specific agenda. Yes, with a very specific agenda. And I think we'll come to that shortly because I I can sense that you're going to ask me what the backstop is. So I am, I definitely We'll get to am. that shortly, but I think it's it's important to close off this I guess, recap of yep. what happened after after the, the referendum in 2016. So Theresa May, after a lot of back and forth and a lot of negotiation, managed to put together a withdrawal agreement that the EU agreed to. Yep. In the first few months of 2019, Theresa May tried to get that passed by Parliament three times. Each time it was knocked back, and you know this was minor tweaks and amendments, so each time it was knocked back, by a huge majority. In one case, the largest majority in British in, in modern British political history. Wow! So, pretty astounding defeat. It was it was pretty astonishing, and she had no choice but to step down from the party leadership, and that's what led to the recent Tory leadership election and Boris Johnson's um, assumption of the prime ministership, which is where we're at now. Yes, right. What we have now is a parliament that just can't make an agreement on what Brexit should look like, which is why we're now at this point where we have a stalemate in relation to the Brexit agreement. The EU has given the UK an extension till the 31st of October to either pass a a withdrawal agreement or they will fall off the cliff, as they call it, and they will leave the EU with no deal. And, of course, Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. So tell us about Boris, Chloe. Who even is he? Well, did you know that his name isn't even Boris? What? His Boris Johnson's first name is Alexander. He uses one of his middle names, Boris. Wow. Which I think says a lot about, you know, his um willingness to kind of fake it till he makes it. 
it also says a lot about the kind of the character that he's built up for himself and the public persona that he's built up for himself over about 30 years in the British public eye. So Boris Johnson has been a journalist. He's been an MP. This is his second time in Parliament. He's also been the Mayor of London. He's been a frequent guest on various British light entertainment shows. So he's had a very many and varied career. Um, and consistent throughout that has been this persona he's built up around himself as this kind of bumbling aristocrat who always makes his way through. And I think that has been the foundation for his popularity. So he has been an immensely popular figure in Britain um, amongst progressive he, progressives for a long time. He was seen as quite innocent and kind of harmless. But I think that's partly where the danger lies of someone like that, someone who hides behind this bumbling exterior, the fact that he is actually incredibly ambitious. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that he has wanted to be Prime Minister since he was a little kid. Yeah, okay. It all sounds kind of, unfortunately, very familiar. But I think it's really important that you, you point out, like, he's essentially an aristocrat, isn't he? He kind of positions himself as anti-elite, but he's very much of the elite. Yes, yes. So he's very much of... His family background is quite... Actually, quite international. So, you know, he's he's sort of the son the son of European um, financiers. Like, that's, that's sort of his background, sort of okay. in those cosmopolitan elites. He went to Eton um, and he also went to Oxford where he was a member of the Bullingdon Club, which is a notorious drinking society for young conservatives who are best known for their, you know, their habit of trashing restaurants. Oh, gross. So he's, he's like basically a stereotype of English privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. That's, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's one thing to kind of laugh at Boris and his buffoon act, but what we also shouldn't forget about him is his history of some extraordinarily racist, homophobic, sexist remarks um, and opinions and his willingness to use the worst in political life to get ahead. And that's another thing that he always does. He always gets ahead. He has made a, a number of mistakes in his professional career that should have ended his time in public life. They haven't. And now he's the prime minister. Yeah, which again sounds pretty familiar. And I, I think it's interesting because, you know, just like Trump, which is the obvious comparison, there seems to be this expectation that eventually there will be a gaffe that trips him up. You know, he'll finally do or say something that'll be the end of him. But it sounds like you don't think that's going to happen. No, no. So that's the history of gaffes that you're referring to, which are generally, you know, when he sounds like he's misspoken about whether it's, you know, saying something incredibly inflammatory and homophobic or something inflammatory and racist. I actually think that they go to that persona he has and I think they're, if not deliberate, they're definitely calculated and he's always been able to parlay what for someone else would be career-ending into kind of a stepping stone. It's kind of a stepping stone to what he wants next. Yeah, okay. And we will, we will of course, get to, to what exactly it is that Boris himself wants next. But I think in, in amongst this kind of huge individual focus that we often get kind of caught up in this, this question of, you know, who is Boris? What is Boris going to do next? There's, a, there's the nature of the problem that he's dealing with itself, which, as you said earlier, of course, is the withdrawal agreement. Um, and that's that's why Boris is PM, because, you know, this withdrawal agreement couldn't get through because May couldn't get it passed. But th that makes us think, I think, or we can be forgiven for thinking that the basic argument is really just about the shape of the withdrawal agreement and that Boris has to renegotiate part of it if he can, which... I'm not sure about. Um, but sometimes I think it could be forgiven for thinking this is just kind of a finicky like legal argument about the order of words on a page. Is that right? 
There is, it's definitely finicky and legal, but that isn't what the political debate that's stopping the withdrawal agreement from being passed from going through. This is not about the agreement itself, it's about the politics and the optics of that agreement. So to go back, there are there are two parts to the agreement. There's firstly the political declaration, which doesn't have to be passed by Parliament. That's a non-binding statement agreed by the UK and the EU of what that future relationship between those two parties should look like. It's very, you know, it's kind of optimistic and vague and it's not really important for these purposes if we're talking about what Parliament has to pass to get a Brexit, Brexit arrangements through. The more important part of that is the formal withdrawal agreement, which I'm putting in capital letters. Um, that's a binding agreement on Brexit. So firstly, on what people are not that helpfully calling the divorce bill, the divorce bill. So that's, you know, the, the um, payment that, the, that Britain would have to make to the EU to pay off any liabilities for its leaving the EU. Um, the second part of that is what protections will be in place for EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in Europe, so protecting their rights. So all those retired British people living in Spain, what will happen to them? Exactly. Yep. I mean, won't somebody think of the retirees? <laughs> um, and then this is really important, the transitional trade arrangements during the negotiation phase, because this withdrawal agreement, once it passes, that's it's designed to give kind of a buffer period while the EU and the UK sort out their future, their future relationship. Um, and the last part of that is the backstop. Okay, so this this the backstop thing really fascinates me, and it, it's it's one again that I was asked about, you know, when I was kind of doing some commentary on Brexit in this kind of cavalier way about what you know what is the backstop, and and the word backstop I think hides some pretty serious issues. So can you could you explain what is what even is the backstop? Okay, first thing to remember about the backstop, which I think. A lot of people get confused about, and I think it's very easy to get confused on this point because it's kind of presented as this imminent threat, is that the backstop will only kick in two years after the end after after Brexit if the withdrawal agreement is passed. Okay. Okay. And it will only kick in under certain conditions. Okay. So there's a lot of ifs. Yes. There's a lot of ifs behind the backstop, but it is, I think, and quite rightly treated as kind of an existential issue for Brexit. So... If the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May originally agreed to with the EU is passed, then built into that are a series of protections for the Irish border. So it's absolutely critical for everyone concerned with Brexit that we retain a soft border between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland. And that means basically no, no customs checks and no, no border patrols, no security at that border. Okay? That's of... It's, it, it, you can't even begin to express how important this is to Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic because without, some, without that soft border, then we are, really fa- we are really facing a resurgence of the sectarian violence that has basically blighted the 20th century history of Ireland. Um, I, I, you really can't underrate how important this is. Um, I think, surprisingly, one of the best evocations of what it what it mean meant to live through the troubles in Isle, in Northern Ireland is Derry Girls. Have you watched Derry Girls? I haven't yet. It's on my to watch list. I binged it last week. <laughs> yeah. And it is really good. It's about young people growing up in the shadow of the troubles and also through the early days of the of the Irish peace process. And it does I think quite effectively and, and in a comedic in a comedic register convey what it was like for young people to live with the threat of violence in their day-to-day lives. So 
I guess what I'm saying is there ha- it is so important to retain a soft border between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland. That is not something you can trade away. No, it's not. But I think people, you know, from my perspective, people do underestimate the importance of that. You know, I think, I mean, Boris Johnson's been pre- pretty dismissive of it as an issue, although that does seem to be changing given the kind of impending seriousness of it. Yeah, he's definitely making, he's, in public, he's definitely less blasé about the importance of some of some protections for that Irish border. Um, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah, I don't think anyone does. But I think it's, it is, you're right, absolutely really important to emphasise how significant, significant this is because it's not, this is not a kind of technical political negotiation. This is the threat of the reignition of violence. And, and I think also in Britain and here we underestimate how important that is in Europe, on the European side of things. Um, we've seen recently EU leaders from, from the French, the Germans, the EU Commission, everybody basically in Europe talking about how important the backstop is and how it is absolutely essential to prevent any kind of violence in Ireland. And I think sometimes this is dismissed as, as not that significant, but for the EU, this is existential. The well, EU is first and foremost about the maintenance of peace in well, that's, Europe. I mean, that was the whole point of the project for European integration was to prevent war in Europe. Exactly. So, that's exactly right. Yeah, so, this, it's, it's, it's an existential, it, it is a massive issue in Ireland, but it is a massive issue also for the EU. It's only really Britain that I think has managed to be well, I sorry, I mean, it's only really England that has managed to be a bit blasé and a bit nonchalant about it and in a way that does, I think, put that European project and, you know, the project of Irish peace at risk. It does. And, I, th- you know, w- one of the extraordinary things even in the last few months is that people are now talking about the prospects for Irish reunification. Which, look, I think a month ago I would have said that was unimaginable, but such is the such is the threat of a no deal brexit and the imposition of a hard border between northern ireland and the irish republic that that is now it's it's now a, it's now a live option which yeah, yeah, which is extraordinary yeah. and, you know, that Boris Johnson might be the Prime Minister who oversees the dissolution of the United Kingdom. He, look, Boris Johnson, I think it's, you know, it's not, I wouldn't call it, say it's probable at this point, but I think it's possible that at the end of all this, Boris Johnson could be presiding over a Britain whose only constituent countries are England and Wales because we haven't even spoken about Scotland. Yeah, what an what an extraordinary thought. Yeah. So, back to the backstop and the technicalities of the backstop. Yes. So, the way it works is that under the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May agreed with the EU, basically Britain things would operate as is for a couple of years while they actually decide on, you know, on political arrangements and trading relationships after the after uh, after that two-year period. Okay? If in that time they haven't come up with some arrangement that would preserve that soft border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, that's when the backstop kicks in. What the backstop means for the UK as a whole is that there would be basically no tariffs between the between the, U, the EU, including the Irish Republic, and the UK. So, so effectively, the UK remains part of the customs yeah, union. Yeah, effective, okay. effectively, but we don't know we don't know the details of that because they're still to be negotiated. But that is what is agreed. Yeah. Okay. And that's just to be clear, that's because the Republic of Ireland is a member in its own right of the European Union yep. and Northern Ireland, of course, is part of Great Britain, yes. which will not be 
Yes. Right? So it's about that, that border between an EU member state and a potentially non-EU member state. Yes, but there's another qualification there because under the backstop, Northern Ireland would also be subject to some additional EU rules that the rest of Britain is not. Wow. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Okay. So this is this is what creates a political problem for passing this with this withdrawal agreement in the British Parliament. So for the DUP, which remember which we remember holds the balance of power in the British Parliament at this point, that backstop would effectively mean that it has special status within the United Kingdom, and that would threaten the territorial integrity between Northern Ireland and mainland Britain, which is. Absolutely, that's that's not something that can be it's negotiable to the DUP. Yep. They exist. They're, they're they are the Democratic Unionist Party. Yep. Their existential purpose is to is Northern Ireland's inclusion as part of yep. Britain. Okay, so and that's not that's totally off the table for them. And that's kind of what this the, you know this innocuous word of backstop obscures is is existential questions yeah. and and potentially clashing existential existential yes. questions. Yes, and that's where there's an additional problem. And I think. This is probably a bigger problem for the passage of the withdrawal agreement because there is a significant number of MPs who, at this point, cannot agree to a withdrawal agreement that includes the backstop. And I'm talking about the sort of the hard Brexiteers in the Tory party, so the people who have coalesced around Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is that very strange... Um, caricature of an Edwardian Catholic aristocrat who's kind of been seen roaming around Parliament speaking Latin and wearing oversized suits. I don't want to, you know, I mean, it's easy to make a joke of Jacob Rees-Mogg, but he also is, he's quite a dangerous figure, I think, in terms of the very reactionary politics that he sponsors and the fact that he, as someone who is also, you know, a multi-millionaire financier, someone who stands to benefit from another version another vision of brexit which would see britain basically establishing itself as like a center for finance capital where everyone else gets kind of left behind cool yeah i know it sounds awesome doesn't it um so the reason why the backstop can't be tolerated by the by the right of the tory party is because they suspect that the result one result of the backstop because it does keep Britain in this tariff-free zone is that it would effectively trap Britain in the customs union. So it, okay. so Brexit would not be the hard Brexit that they actually want, that they act, they're actively seeking. So it's kind of an underhanded way of keeping Britain in the EU. Yes, that's yep. absolutely okay. right. Okay, so, th- so the, the weight of history here is pretty significant, right? And that's the kind of, I think, the current that's been running through our conversation, that this isn't just about kind of finicky legal issues around customs union or backstops or, or whatever we want to call it. This is the weight of history kind of looms pretty large here to mix my metaphors. How has, from your perspective as, as a British historian, how has history and the kind of popular understandings of the role of history in Britain played out in these political debates? I think you're right in saying that history has weighed a lot on these debates but I would also add to that that history has been pretty effectively weaponised, especially by the Leave side, so by the pro-Brexit, by pro-Brexit people. Um, one of the things that we'll most often hear from Brexiters if they ask us what, you know, what Britain's future looks like after the EU is they'll talk about what they call a global Britain. And that's kind of a euphemism for a revived British empire. So they have this idea that 
Um, first of all, that after the EU, then Britain will be able to depend on its close ally, the United States, for trade, um, which after Donald Trump's visit to the UK is looking less and less likely that, you know, the, UK, the US will be a reliable partner in that. Um, and more importantly, that they'll basically be effectively able to reconstitute the trade networks of the British Empire that were in existence for, what, 250 years effectively of British imperial history. So they're saying that they'll be able to um, create bilateral trade agreements with Australia um, and that they'll be dependent on trade with, with India and, and the subcontinental countries. Where that runs into a problem is that a lot has changed in the more than 50 years since, this, since the sun set on the British Empire. So, for instance, if, if Britain is talking about creating these bilateral trade agreements with Australia, the reality is that that's going to be a low priority for us because the main game for us in trade terms is China. If Britain is interested in fostering trade with India, then it actually doesn't have any power in that relationship. India has all the cards in that. So... You know, it's kind of a misuse and an abuse of history, first of all, to, you know, to present the British Empire as less than, you know, the project of domination and dispossession that it actually was, um, but also to pretend that's something that can realistically be revived. So, yes, that's how history has been kind of weaponized by the Brexiters. And I think, but also on the other side, I think that one of the challenges for the um for the Remain side, so people who still want Britain to have a close relationship with the EU, whether it's formally a member or whether it is just part of the customs union or whatever version of that you see in the future, is that they're not so good at talking about their history and the history of the benefits that the EU has offered to the UK. Look, I think that's right. I think, you know, Boris Johnson is in particular is very good at using history in exactly the way you describe. In fact, he kind of sees himself as a historian, doesn't he? He's, well, he has written some history books, notably a biography of Winston Churchill. He, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that he's kind of, one of his many projects has been to kind of present himself as Winston Churchill reincarnate. Um, And of course, when he's doing that, he's kind of calling on Churchill's history as a statesman, as a war leader, and also as an imperialist. But he, well, the bit he misses out is misses out misses out on is of course that Winston Churchill was also a Europeanist, which I think you can probably you probably understand a little bit about that. Yeah, look, I mean a little bit, and it's it's interesting the kind of use and abuse of Churchill in in British history is a couple of books in itself, probably. But yeah, yeah, absolutely right that Churchill supported the European project. So I, I think it's worth kind of re- going back and and revisiting that history as well because. In Australia, in particular, I think we don't we don't have a great understanding of our relationship with the European Union, and that's because of our historic ties to Britain. Of course, like most of our news about the EU comes from Britain, so we have a certain perspective. But you know, it's worth remembering that the the European project is is born out of the ashes of the Second World War. The whole the whole point of the European Union is to avoid that kind of global catastrophe from ever happening again. So it starts out life in the late 1940s, early 1950s, as the European coal and steel community. And and what that's designed to do is tie former enemies, particularly France and Germany, so closely together in kind of key economic areas like coal and steel that they can't extricate themselves. So they're economically tied so closely that they actually can't afford to go to war with each other. They'd be unable to wage war against each other again. Okay, so you're saying that the the original agreements that led to the EU... They were designed not to be revoked. Yeah, exactly. Which, exactly. So, so that's probably one of the reasons why Britain has found itself having such an unexpectedly hard time getting out of the EU. 
after being enmeshed in it for 40 years. That's exactly right. These All of these agreements, the kind of successive treaties of the European Union, are designed specifically that way to integrate Europe so closely that it's, it cannot be in conflict, that those countries cannot be in conflict with each other. And and Britain was supportive of that project originally, you know, no you know, it wasn't in Britain's interests to to be against that project, to be against avoiding war again. But I think interestingly, you know, Britain was invited to join the seven founding countries of of Europe in that way in to sign the 1957 Treaty of Rome and Britain declined. So, you know, they had this outstanding invitation from the start that they declined. Um for, I guess we could say probably for a couple of reasons, just briefly, you know, the first one being exactly what you were talking about before, this kind of imperial nostalgia that Britain doesn't take orders from anybody. Britain is kind of the, the country that gives orders. Um, and and then there's also that kind of, I guess, that island mentality. You know, Britain has often seen itself as separate, literally separate and isolated from yeah. Europe and closer often to the United States. So I think especially in, in post-war Britain, there, there was this view that actually the United States was kind of the saviour, not Europe. And so there were closer ties there. And then there's also a kind of much longer history of conflict with the continent. You know, I just watched The Favourite on the plane. And of course, during that movie, Britain and France are at war as they have been for, you know, several centuries, yeah. shall we say. Yeah, because of course Britain did eventually come around and they decided that they wanted to join the European Economic Community, but France said no. That's right. So so the British decided that actually, no, we, we would like to join this quite successful economic project in the 60s. They applied a couple of times and Charles de Gaulle, the French president, said no, get stuffed, in probably in a more French kind of way. Yeah, because the EU, it has a really effective system of vetoes. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the French vetoed twice. So it's not until 1973 when de Gaulle has left office that Britain does join the EU under a Conservative Prime Minister. Which is something people may easily forget and it would be totally understandable if given the recent history of Brexit if people did forget that it was the Conservative Party that ushered in this early period of European integration and what I mean people in Britain they of course they know a little bit more about this but for an Australian audience it might also surprise them to hear that there was actually a, a referendum on Britain's membership of the EU in 1975. There was, that's right. There was. And even more surprising, given what we understand now about Britain and the EU, that was largely spurred on by the Labour Party, so by Britain's Progressive Party, and that was mostly because of their suspicion against their suspicion about the EU and specifically about the EU and what it was going to do for workers and what it was going to do to workers' rights. Um, some of those suspicions, they still are present on the left, which... Um, we could show a whole other podcast about this. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. <laughs> Maybe we will. But, you know, that, that also explains why um, even in the Labor Party and especially in the Labor Party's leadership, um, the Labor Party is currently lead, led by Jeremy Corbyn, um, there is this sort of residual strain of what we call Euroscepticism or even in its fullest form what we would call Lexit, so left exit, so leftists who would be supportive of Britain leaving the EU. That's right. And I think it's because there is a a perception 
you know, that is, is kind of right and wrong at the same time that the European Union is a neoliberal project. Mm-hmm. So it's about kind of opening up markets and encouraging globalisation and that workers will suffer as a result. And and as I say, that's, that's kind of both right and wrong at the same time. So if you look at, for example, the aftermath of the global financial crisis and the way that Europe, which was completely ravaged by that financial crisis in a way that you know, we did not experience in Australia. The way that the European Union reacted to that was kind of explicitly neoliberal and absolutely led to economic suffering. And But then we also have a kind of, I guess we have a two-track Europe. So what, what you might call social Europe is is very different to that kind of neoliberal economic construction where actually the people of Europe are supported socially in terms of really strong welfare systems. And that, again, goes back to the construction of Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War and that project being designed to prevent that conflict but also to prevent things like the starvation that occurred during the Second World War and and food shortages. So that's a kind of crucial project of the European Union which is designed to, to safeguard and secure the future of European citizens. So that, again, you know, that adds another layer of complication to this conversation when we're talking about why people support or don't support or kind of support staying in the in your European Union. Yeah, and I think, you know, to go back to the conversations that I've had with my family in Essex, um, I think that apart from, you know, what I mentioned about it, I think they're having honestly racist motivations behind wanting to leave the EU, there is there can be a confusion amongst in you know amongst popular supporters you know the public supporting brexit between what they see as you know the eu having been the agent of disenfranchising them of leaving them in you know in precarious work of leaving them basically struggling and the actuality which is that the british welfare state has been gutted over the last 40 years as initiated by another Tory Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, exactly, which the European Union had kind of nothing to do with. Yeah, that's right. But Thatcher, you know, was also a supporter of of Britain joining the EU, you know, just to add another layer of complication to this political narrative. Okay, so anyway, mentioning this history of of food shortages, I think actually brings brings me to my, what's probably going to be my final big question to you, Chloe. Um, because there's talk of that, of food shortages happening again in Britain if we do see a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October. So that's my question, I suppose, and that 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 is what happens next, do you think? It's a bit unfair of me to ask that of a historian, it's I know. so unfair. It's, look, I think that's an unfair question to ask of anyone. I don't think Boris Johnson knows what's going to happen next. Yeah, look, that's that's probably true and is kind of terrifying to I'm, think about, but... I, I'm gonna. I'm asking you anyway. I'm. I'm doing it. Are, are we really looking at no deal? So two days ago, we're now speaking on Thursday. I would have said, as I have said for months, that a no deal Brexit is the most likely outcome at this point. That all changed when last week Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament. Okay, so changed so, everything. <laughs> this word keeps coming up, and I can like barely even say it. Johnson prorogued Parliament. Prorogued. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, to be honest. Like, it's one of those words that just sort of rolls off the tongue better and is when it's in like a crisp, upper-middle-class English accent. Like, Hugh Grant would say it well. <laughs> he would. Well, I definitely do not have Hugh Grant's accent. So what, what even is that? Can you explain what that means? So effectively, prorogging Parliament meant that Boris Johnson called an end to the current parliamentary session, which we have to remember was one of the longest parliamentary sessions in history. It had gone for wow, two really? years. Okay. Yep. And proroguing is, it's a 
technical thing that that stops Parliament until such time as the Queen's speech comes about. So the Queen's speech is a speech given by the Queen which outlines the government's priorities for the upcoming session. Tactically, what Boris Johnson was trying to do by proroguing Parliament was severely curtail the current sitting session so that his opponents in Parliament who are looking to delay Brexit again, so beyond that 31st of October date, or force a vote of no confidence in his government, they wouldn't have time to do that. Okay, so he's effectively stopping Parliament from kind of being able to go over the head of the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And this is this goes to one of the central questions of Brexit that's come up in the courts over the last few years about what it means in relation to British democracy. So is Brexit is is the power to push through a Brexit? Does that does that belong to the executive, to the Prime Minister, or does that belong to Parliament, to the elected representatives of the people? So this is kind of it's a big it raises a lot of big questions around British democracy. Okay, so is that is that why that like a lot of the sensationalist cover, coverage that I've seen of the prorogation of Parliament is that word again? Very well, <laughs> thank you. Um, is that it's actually a coup? Yes. I've heard that bandied around a lot over the last week and I completely sympathise with people calling Mm. it a coup. I think it is a gross abuse of Boris Johnson's powers as the Prime Minister, but I don't think that that language is necessarily helpful if you do want to defend British democracy because... While Boris Johnson was abusing those powers, they are powers he has under the, okay, yeah, so under the, rule, under the rules of the game. Yeah, he's totally allowed to do it. It is the power to prorogue Parliament belongs to the executive, to the Prime Minister, and that has to gain the assent of the monarch, so the Queen. It, Parliament is not involved in that decision. Okay, right. So he's not he's not doing anything illegal, but he's maybe kind of pushing against some established norms. Yeah, he's definitely trashing some conventions and expectations of of his role and you know what what it would be to be a responsible democratic leader. But by calling it a coup, we're kind of missing the point, which is that this is really testing and it's showing the limits of British democracy. Okay, I see. So what, in a kind of practical sense, what do you think are the, will be the consequences of that? Well, this is where I think, I think everything has changed and, you know, my own opinions are in a state of flux. I'm happy to acknowledge that. I'm, you know, for once I'm kind of happy to be proven wrong because I think this is the first moment in a long time where I've had any hope for a good, reasonable outcome from, okay, well, from Brexit. Yeah. Um, so when Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament, he thought that was basically putting all his opponents into a corner. He also, I think, was trying to get the attention of the EU by saying, by basically demanding that they take him seriously because he is the British leader who they will be dealing with in okay, any future I negotiations. See. That has backfired for two reasons. And two kind of unexpected reasons. One is that the rebels in the Tory party who want to, to at least delay Brexit and so delay it past that 31st of October deadline, they have held very firm on their position and in their resolve against Boris Johnson's threats to remove the whip. Okay. So remove... I know. It sounds kind of scary and also it a does. little bit sexy. Yeah. That's yeah, kind of It creepy. basically means Boris Johnson has kicked them out of the party. Right, okay. Yeah, which is, you know, which is a serious consequence yep. for their actions, but they have held firm in, in the face of that. The other thing that has surprised me about this is the Labor Party's position. So they quite cleverly have said that... Okay, so to go back, Boris Johnson is now talking about an election in October, okay? okay? The Labor Party has said that they will not support an election in October 
unless they get the legislation through to put to ask the EU for an extension to the Brexit deadline beyond the 31st of October. Right, and they, can they make good on that threat? They can because, and this is one of those again, an unintended result of some previous legislation that passed through a few years ago because elections in the UK, to call an election, it requires two-thirds of parliament to vote in support of that. I see. And Johnson doesn't have anywhere near that kind of majority. No, he will need the, okay. Labor, Party. He will need the Labor Party to agree to any election. And they've, at a very basic level, they've said that they need that legislation to be passed. They also need to have a guarantee, whether that, I don't, I don't know if that means a royal assent or if that means, you know, Boris Johnson physically turning up in Brussels and begging <laughs> and begging for that extension to the deadline, they want to guarantee that Boris Johnson will respect that decision by Parliament because he has and, his, and some of his ministers have quite seriously threatened to, complete, to ignore Parliament if they were to pass that legislation. Wow, okay. Yeah, so you... that's that's really the big rider on it. But then there are some tricky issues around the timing. So there's a bit of tension bubbling up inside the Labor Party about whether they would accept an election before that 31st of October deadline or if they would push for that to take place after the 31st of October. That's kind of an unknown at this point. And I think that okay. will come, what happens there will become clear in the next few days. Wow, there are so many ifs and buts in this scenario. It's like almost impossible to get get your head around. Okay, so so then given all this, the state of play on Thursday, what do you think happens next? Oh, I to be honest, I don't know. I think partly it depends on the House of Lords. So this legislation is now being debated in the Lords, which can't actually can't stop it going. Well, it can what the House of Lords can potentially do is frustrate this legislation. So, you know, through filibusters, through mm-hmm. amendments, and this would be coming up from, you know, Brexit ultras, so people okay. who want hard Brexit. On the and, sorry, this is the legislation to yes. delay. Yeah, that's yep. the legislation to delay. They could potentially frustrate that until we reach the point where Parliament where Parliament ends. Okay, which but is they where could the also, comes I, in. Yeah. I genuinely don't know. And, you know, like I said, I... I that is my educated my educated opinion is I don't know what happens <laughs> next. But I would say that, like I said before, for the first time in months, I think that there is a chance of getting a reasonable deal that would not cause economic catastrophe for Britain and political catastrophe in Ireland. Um, whether that means that there's going to be a softer Brexit or, in fact, if this ends up going to another referendum, and, you know, everything gets put on the table again and Britain and British people have the opportunity to, I guess, take back the decision from 2016? I don't know. Wow. Okay. So so I'm getting what I'm getting from you is that there's a, a, a kind of sense of hope that this might be there might be a better resolution than we thought, but we're not exactly sure. Yeah, yeah look, I've I've got a sense of hope, but it's very, very provisional. Okay, fair enough. And I and I guess what we are sure about is that this is a just a complete and utter mess. Yeah, yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's a complete schmuzzle. Okay, well g- given that, I'm gonna ask you another extremely unfair question, which is who who is responsible for this mess can we can we say there are, there are specific people to blame for this mess we it's i 
I think that's an unfair question to ask. Oh, completely a unfair. Yeah, when you ask a historian to isolate a single cause, they'll give you a twenty thousand word essay on why there are multiple causes <laughs> for any one problem. At least twenty thousand um, words. Look, what I would like to underline, I guess, because we haven't really covered it in the discussion so far. We've talked a lot about what's happened over the last three years. We've talked quite a bit about the origins of the EU. We've also talked about Ireland and how Ireland has complicated Brexit. I think that one thing we also need to make clear is that this politically, a lot of the responsibility for this rests with the Conservative Party. So I said before that David Cameron, by calling the 2016 referendum, he was kind of outsourcing a problem in his own party to the electorate. This wasn't, it's not, it wasn't something that was sort of just a minor issue. This is something that has been recurring within the Tory party since the time of Margaret Thatcher, who herself lost the prime ministership because of her position on on Europe. This has been sort of a civil war that's been going on in the, in the Tory party. It's like in fits and bouts since the nineties. And I think it was supremely irresponsible for David Cameron to try to settle that by calling a referendum, by putting the question on the British people when really he just should have managed his party better. Yeah, and I mean, outsourcing the question didn't work, did it? Because the Tory party is still very much in, in civil war. Well, well, that's the thing. And there, are, there is real talk of this being the end of the Conservative Party, which I think is absolutely not what David Cameron intended in 2016. No, I wouldn't have thought so. On that bleak note, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. We hope very much that you'll subscribe. At the moment, I think the only people who are listening are Emma and my mother's. Um, and a handful of boomerants who they've shared (laughs) the details of the pod with on Facebook. So please subscribe. You can follow both of us on Twitter. I'm at Emma Shortis. And I'm at Dr. Clod, C-H-L-O-O-D. I'd really appreciate the follow because I have only got back on Twitter expressly for the purpose of this podcast. So please make it worth my time. So everybody get on Twitter. We'll also um, tweet out some links to the, some of the stuff we've talked about, some some articles, some books that we've talked about, and some links to some more info if you're particularly interested in some of the topics that we're talking about. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about another of the reasons why we're barely getting by, and that's US politics. We'll be covering, among some other stuff, the history of the US-Australian relationship in advance of Scott Morrison's upcoming visit to Washington, D.C., at the end of September. So I'm going to turn the tables on Emma because she is an, an expert and an absolute star when it comes to talking about US politics and ask her some hard questions. Which should be fun. Probably another Sunshine Rainbows podcast from Chloe and I. We hope you'll tune in. Barely Getting By is presented by Emma Shortus and Chloe Ward. We'd like to thank RMIT for their support in producing and distributing the podcast.